Welcome to the Field of Church podcast. Our church inhales and exhales the gospel every Sunday and is excited to bring our messages to you here. Thank you for joining us and we hope God moves in your life as you listen into this feed. So I have a question for you. What do you most treasure in your life? You know, what, is the, what, what are the most important things to you? What, what has the most value to you? Maybe you stop and think for a while and you couldn't figure it out, but I, I can actually tell you, it's, it's really easy to figure out what you treasure. You just got to be in a situation where you're forced to decide what you're going to keep and what you're going to get rid of, and that'll tell you what you treasure. I, I had a moment where I, I was forced to make that decision. So this was 22 years ago. I'm about to head to live overseas in Buenos Aires, Argentina for two years. And I'm about to go as a missionary with the International Mission Board. And the IMB says, all right, you got four suitcases and that's all you can bring. So two years worth of life, only thing you're going to have with you has to fit in those four suitcases. And I learned a whole lot about myself by what I put into those four suitcases. Actually, I learned a lot by what I didn't put into those four suitcases. I was surprised. You know, I had a video game system. I didn't pack that into my suitcase, even though I'd have plenty of time to play video games. But I didn't need that. I didn't, I didn't treasure that. I didn't put in my baseball bat or my baseball glove, even though baseball was such a huge part of my childhood. I didn't bring it with me. I didn't bring my books that I had studied for so long and spent thousands and thousands of dollars on when I was in college. I didn't need those. I didn't bring my fraternity jersey or my little placard I had, even though I had pledged and spent hours with that fraternity. I didn't bring any of my stuff. I had worked so hard to graduate from Baylor University. I had a really cool gold Baylor ring. I didn't bring that with me. Those weren't the things that I treasured. What I did bring with me, though, were a lot, a lot simpler. I brought clothes, of course, because I didn't want to be a naked missionary in Argentina, so plenty of clothes. And then I, I brought with me uh, a Bible, for sure. I'm going to be a missionary, probably need that. Brought some commentaries, a, a prayer journal. Brought a computer so I could stay connected with my family back home. But, but one of the things that most surprised me by what I made room for in those four suitcases was, was this three-ring binder right here. So it's a big old binder, you know, it takes up a lot of space inside a suitcase, but I brought this because of what it meant to me. And you go, well, what's, what's in here? So this is a binder that my, the youth group made for me where I was a youth pastor in Waco, a Meadowbrook Baptist Church. It says, we love you. You are in our prayers, Meadowbrook Youth, August 1st, 1999. And in this is just a bunch of letters that were written by the students that were in the ministry about how I had shared the gospel with them and how they'd come to Christ and some of the ways I've been able to counsel with them and things that they saw God do. And they put some pictures in there that I could remember them by. And, and I actually took this with me, packed it in my suitcase. And from time to time when I was overseas, I would pull this little binder out and I would just look through these pictures and remember and the reason why I brought this is because I treasured these relationships. I treasured the friendships. I treasured the ministry that God allowed me to have. And so I brought it with me. In fact, for this sermon, it was easy to find. It was sitting in my office because I still take this out from time to time and look at it because I treasure what this symbolizes. I was surprised by what I treasured. And I wonder if you would be too. What do you treasure? Maybe you're going, okay, well, Jason, you had a great opportunity, but I'm not about to move out of the country with only four suitcases, so how do I know what I treasure? Well, I can let you do a little exercise. In fact, I encourage you after the service is over to actually do this. Virginia and I went back and forth with this little exercise. So imagine your house is about to burn down, like classic story, right? But imagine that all your loved ones are gonna be able to get out alive. All your animals, your pets, whatever that may be, every living thing makes it out alive. But you can pick five things out of your house that you want to take with you, that you want to save. What are those five things? That'll tell you a whole lot about what you treasure. 
And let me go ahead and forewarn you, it probably won't be the refrigerator and the flat screen TV, even though those are probably some of the more expensive things in your home. That's not what you're going to go running in to grab. It's probably going to be photographs. It's going to be your computer because you've got so many pictures stored on that computer. It, it may be a, a wedding dress if you got passed down a dress from your mother and it's one that one day you were hoping to get married and maybe it's some article that's very significant. What you're going to discover it's just not the most expensive things. It's the things that mean the most to you. This is what you treasure. So what do you treasure? That's important you discover this because there are some things that we treasure that bring joy and there are other things that we treasure that bring pain. There is a right thing and a wrong thing to treasure. And this morning, the Apostle Paul wants to teach us the right thing to treasure, the thing that when we treasure it, it brings us unending and outlandish joy. He's going to teach us as we continue on in the book of Philippians. So open your Bible to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be in the second half of verse 18 in just a moment. But while you're flipping over there, let me tell you, he's going to start off this part with a resounding message of his joy, that he is overflowing with joy, rejoicing continually. But you got to remember, when he wrote this letter, I spoke about this a couple of weeks ago, he was shackled to a Roman soldier in house arrest in Rome awaiting a trial that could likely be his death. And it's in this harsh, difficult moment that he is overflowing with joy. Just, just listen to how it starts. Second half of verse 18 of Philippians chapter 1 says this, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And what, what incredible truth in here. But did you see how you started? He says, yes, and I will rejoice. You notice the tense of that verb, it's future. I'm going to keep on rejoicing in the future. Now remember, nothing in his circumstances should make him rejoice, to, to, to cause joy to come out of him. But he was in that moment to say, yeah, I know I'm shackled to a Roman soldier. I know I'm in house arrest. I know all my freedoms have been taken. I know I'm about to face a judge that could likely unlawfully execute me, even though I don't deserve it. That all may be true, but guess what? I'm still going to rejoice. Why? Because his treasure was in the right place and that treasure brought him joy. You begin to see glimpses of this treasure in verse 19 when he starts to talk about his deliverance. He says there, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit that it will turn out for my deliverance. Now at first glance, it sounds like he's saying it's going to turn out for me to be delivered from this prison cell, like I'm going to be set free. And that could be part of the equation. In fact, as we keep on reading, you're going to see that he was fairly confident that he would likely be able to be freed from prison and continue in ministry. But you also, as you read the, the letter to the Philippians, you realize that Paul is not certain of that. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 17, he says, there's a chance I may be poured out as a drink offering. In other words, I may die over here in this trial. I don't know whether I'm going to live or die. And, and that word deliverance in Greek is soteria. It's where the word salvation comes from. So he's saying, I am certain I will be saved either in this life or the next he says, my deliverance is coming. I will either be delivered from these prison shackles or I will be delivered from this earthly shackle. I will be set free. And because of it, he saw it, whether it was life or death, as a win-win. It was this perspective that led him to say one of the most incredible, most memorized verses in the entire Bible, Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's basically saying, brother, sister, it is a win-win with me. Come what may, if I live praise God. If I die, praise God. It's all a win to me. Now, I know there's some of you going, okay, now slow down here, Jason. I get the whole living part 
as a praise God, that's a win. But how could death, especially if he is being unlawfully executed by a Roman government that doesn't deserve to execute him, but won't bring about justice, how is that a win? How is that a, a praise God moment? Well, he actually tells us in verses 22 to 26. Let's keep on reading in the passage. He says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I'll remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So he says, I'm really struggling here about what the better option is. He says, I, it, I want to live and do ministry, but I want to die and be with the Lord. They're both a win for me. Now, some of you will struggle more with the dying part. How could that be a win? And he says it very clearly. Back in verse 23, he says, here's why. My desire is to depart so that I can be with Christ. And that is so much better. You see, in, in Paul's worldview, Christ was his treasure. And to be with Jesus Christ was the greatest glory he could imagine. In fact, that word, he says, to depart and be with Christ. That word depart in Greek, it's a nautical term. It, it meant to be loosened or unmoored. Like, think about a ship that's, that's tied to the, the shore and it's untied. It's loosened so that it can set sail. And Paul is saying, there's a day coming when I'm going to be loosed from this earth, untethered from this earth, and I'm going to get to set sail to be with my Savior, Jesus Christ. And nothing brings me greater joy. Christ was his treasure. And the thought that leaving this earth meant he would be with him meant it was gain and it was worth it. Now, I, I think we struggle with that because we don't look at heaven the same way Paul did. There was a book I've read before. Maybe you've read it too. It's called Crazy Love by Francis Chan. He, he poses a really rough question in that book. He says, I want to ask you a question. If, if you could have heaven and heaven meant everything that you've ever dreamed of doing, you could do. You wanted to hike up to the highest mountain and not grow tired, you could do it. You wanted to play golf for the rest of your days, you could do it, shoot a perfect score every time. You want to go swimming across the ocean, you want to run a marathon and not be tired, you can do it all. You would have all your family there with you, all your loved ones, you'd be reunited. You'd have a banquet every single morning for breakfast and lunch and dinner. You'd have everything that you ever wanted. It would be joy complete, except Jesus wouldn't be there. Would you be okay with that heaven? And I think there's a lot of us would have to say, ah, maybe so. I mean, that sounds pretty great. But let me tell you, the Apostle Paul would not have been okay with that heaven. Because Paul's treasure wasn't being able to run and not growing weary. It, weary. it wasn't having his family there. It wasn't being able to eat whatever he wanted or do whatever he wanted. His treasure was Christ. He wanted Jesus. And the thought that he could be untethered from this life and be in the very presence of Jesus overwhelmed him. And he said, please bring it to me. That's so much better. But Paul also knew that to stay on this earth meant more people could learn about his treasure, Jesus Christ. That more people could discover that there was someone worth living for named Jesus. And he knew that if he was alive, he could continue that ministry. And so for Paul, if he lived, that was a win. If he died, that was a win. Nothing could bring him down. That's what beautiful faith looks like. But let me tell you what, it, what, was, what was beautiful about this faith. Even beyond that, what was beautiful about it is that it made Paul utterly invincible. 
No one could rattle Paul. You couldn't get Paul down. I mean, just imagine this scenario for a moment. This, this might have actually happened when he was shackled to a Roman soldier because you know he was sharing the gospel over and over and over, talking about this Messiah named Jesus to every Roman soldier who was with him. And what if one day one of these Roman soldiers like, please, Paul, would you just shut your yap? I'm so tired of hearing about your Messiah. If you say one more thing about this Jesus, man, I'm going to kill you myself. To which Paul would say, no, I'm cool with that. For me to die is gain, I'm ready. Bring it on. To which the soldier now says, well, oh, you think that? Oh, you got death wish, fine. I'll let you live. To which Paul says, no, that's cool too. Because, you know, for me to live, that's Christ. I can share the gospel with other people. So that'll work. To which now the Roman soldier ticked off, says, oh, fine. Well, I'll let you live, but I'll make you suffer for it. To which Paul says, well, if you'll read my book to the Romans in chapter eight, verse 18, you'd discover that, that I believe that the suffering of this present age isn't even worth being compared to the glory that is to be revealed to me. It would be my honor to suffer for the sake of the name of Jesus. So I'm ready. How about you? Could you imagine trying to be a Roman soldier rattling Paul, but you can't do it? You, no matter what you say, he's prepared for it. Paul was utterly invincible. His joy was unflinching and unshaking. Why? Because he had his treasure in the right place. No matter what came at him, he would find joy because he had his treasure. And that was Paul's life. And Paul has been detailing out his perspective, but he's about to do something in verse 27. He's about to flip it over and turn back to the Philippians. And in so doing, he turns it back to us where he says, it's not just enough for me to have this mindset to live as Christ, to die as gain. I want you to have it too. I want Christ to be your treasure. Watch, as how, watch how he begins to attack us while he begins to bring that word to us in verses 27 as we, uh, that we keep on going here. Verses 27 to 30, listen to what it says. It says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So he starts off by saying, now it's up to you. I've told you my life. Now, Philippians, I look to you. I want you to let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. I want you to live up to the gospel of Christ, he says. Now, that little phrase where it says manner of life, I'm reading from the ESV. That phrase is actually one word in Greek, and it's a very unusual word. It's only used two times in the entire New Testament, and it's actually not used anywhere else outside of the New Testament. Most scholars believe that Paul actually invented this word. And the word has to do with citizenship. He uses a form of this word in chapter 3, verse 20 of Philippians, where he talks about the fact that we're citizens of heaven. So basically, he's saying, let your citizenship be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, I think there's a reason why Paul invented this word and used this word about citizenship because he was talking to the Philippians and the Philippian people were ex exceptionally proud of their Roman citizenship. Now, if you know anything about Paul and, and his journeys, then you discover that Roman citizenship was very rare in those days, and it was something held in high esteem. Paul was a Roman citizen. And there were very few people in the Roman Empire who got to be Roman citizens. But Philippi was a Roman colony, and they were so proud of being Roman. In fact, they spoke Latin. They didn't speak Greek like the rest of the people in Macedonia. And they were so confident that they had the rights and privileges of a Roman citizen. And Paul looks at the believers there, and he says, don't be, don't be proud of your Roman citizenship. Be proud of your heavenly citizenship. 
Remember, way above Rome is heaven. And that's where your identity comes from. He's saying live up to your heavenly citizenship. And that means strive for what's eternal and not what's for temporal on this earth. And when you change that perspective, all of a sudden, the outlandish words he says in verse 29 make sense. I don't know if you noticed that verse. I'm going to read it again for you. But I want you to see just how crazy these words are. Listen to what he said again in verse 29. He said, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Those are crazy words. It has been granted to you. You've been given the privilege, the gift of suffering for the sake of the name of Jesus. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like much of a gift I want to open up on Christmas morning. Been given the gift of suffering. Now, the gift to believe, yeah, I can get that. He says, you've been not only granted the gift of believing. Now, if, you, if you're a Christian, if you have your theology in the right place, then you recognize that your faith in Christ is a gift from God. He pursued us before we pursued him. He opened our eyes up so that we could see him and have faith in him. Absolutely, the ability to believe in him is a gift from God. But he says, that's not the only gift. You've been given the gift of being called worthy to suffer for the sake of the name. Let me tell you what, when Paul said this, he didn't just talk the talk. That brother walked the walk. That's what verse 30 was talking about. He said, yeah, I, you're going to be engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and that, I, that you hear that I still have. Now, when he says that, he, when he says that the conflict that I still have, he's talking about his Roman imprisonment, his suffering for the sake of the name. But when he mentions the same conflict that you saw I had, he's reminding them of what happened when he was in Philippi 10 years earlier. Now, if you didn't hear the sermon from a couple of weeks ago, I highly encourage you, go back and listen to that sermon because it gives you all the context for the letter of the Philippians. But in that, I shared a bit of the, the history in Acts chapter 16. So here's what he's referring to. He was in Philippi and he had cast out a demon from a slave girl and the, the owners of that slave girl got ticked off. They called the leaders of the city, called the magistrates and the magistrates came and they stripped Paul and Silas and they ordered them beaten with rods until they're half dead, covered in blood, open wounds, and then they take them and throw them in a prison, shackled in the inner prison, left there to suffer. And do you know what Paul and Silas do? In the middle of the night, covered in their own blood with open wounds, they begin to sing songs of praise. They begin to worship their king because they were counted worthy to suffer for the sake of the name. And Paul is saying, you saw with your own eyes that it is possible to have joy in the middle of intense suffering. It is an honor to suffer for the sake of the name. And he turns to them and he says, I know you Philippians will be engaged in the same conflict because the same people who persecuted us will persecute you. And I want to remind you, you can have joy in the middle of the hardest of circumstances. How? By making sure that you treasure what really matters. See, Paul is saying it is possible to suffer with joy. Okay, now I want to time out right there just for a moment. I want to state what I believe to be the obvious. It is really hard to stomach that idea that we should celebrate suffering with joy, to see it as a gift of God. I mean, I know it sounds spiritual and I know we hear passages of scripture and we might say that we believe that, but in our heart of hearts, do we really believe that suffering is a joy and a gift from God? Because I think most of us, when we would endure some suffering, we wouldn't feel that way. I think most of us, we would be angry with God that we would be forced to suffer, even if it was for the sake of his name. I think that's a hard pill to swallow. And there are some of us that might struggle to see how suffering as a gift jives with Christianity. How could that be congruent? 
But let me remind you of the symbol of Christianity. Before you try to reject this idea, let me remind you, the symbol of Christianity, it is not a peace sign, hey, peace and love and harmony. No, it's not a dollar sign, prosperity and everything you want. It's not a recliner that we get to look back for comfort and convenience, not a, a lazy boy chair. It's a cross. It's a Roman instrument of suffering and torture and death. That is the symbol of our very faith. Suffering is woven into the very fabric, the DNA of who we are as followers of Jesus. So make no mistake about it. It is not outlandish to think that in our faith that we should receive suffering as a gift from God himself. To which some of you are going, well, then I don't know if I want to be a Christian. Well, that's definitely a cost you should count because following Christ means fellowshipping with him in that suffering and to see it as a joy and an honor. To which even the strongest Christian right now is going, Jason, I hear you, but how? How do I view suffering with joy? How do I view it as a, a gift, a privilege from God? I just don't know how. Well, there's only one way I can think of, one way that makes suffering a gift, and it's the reward of suffering. And that reward is Jesus. There is nothing that brings us closer to Jesus Christ than the fellowship and the sufferings of Christ. In fact, the Apostle Paul, he says, he's going to say it later in chapter 3, verse 10. He talks about how his deepest desire is to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. That when we suffer, we have intimacy with Jesus. And if he's our treasure, like I mentioned before, then all of a sudden it becomes worth it. This is actually one of the reasons why we fast. During the Lenten season, I'm going to be challenging you guys to fast with me during that Lenten season, to spend time. Because when we fast, when we go without food, we enter into suffering. Why? Because we want more of Jesus. And there's something about suffering, even if it's just going without food, that, that just kind of clears out all the clutter, takes away all the noise, and we discover more of Jesus Christ at the end of that journey. Paul knew that to be true. And because his treasure was Christ, his passion was Christ, if suffering meant he got more of Jesus, then count him in. He was ready for it. And he's saying, would you? Would you be ready for it? Would you consider that even suffering can be a source of joy because you'll get more of Jesus? You know, I think one of the biggest reasons why we struggle to accept that is because we don't treasure what Paul treasured. Paul said very clearly, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But I think you and I, we tend to flip the script a little bit. I think for many of us, especially those of us who were raised in the church, those of us in the, in the Western church in the U.S., we would write for us, for to me, to live is gain and to die is Christ. Let me tell you what I mean by that. I, I think there are many who, when we were kids, you know, we heard the gospel message. Maybe it was at vacation Bible school and our sermon somewhere. And, and we prayed that the sinner's prayer, repeated after somebody said the right kind of prayer. Then we were baptized and we're going, all right. I have been told that I'm going to go to heaven now. Everything is good. When I die, that'll be Christ. But right now, man, I'm living to gain. I want to make the most out of this life. Life is short. We only have so many times around the sun. I want to live it up. I want to, I want to make some memories. I want to build a family. I want to buy a house. I want to be successful in my career. I want to have some money. I, I want to take some vacations. I want to just, I want to live this life up. And we live this life as if to live is gain. And in the, yeah, 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 praise God. To die, that's Christ. But let me tell you what's wrong with that. When we make this world about gain, all that creates is pain and suffering because it will never be enough. If you say, for me to live, that's success. 
That's money, that's sex, that's beauty, that's entertainment, that's whatever, fill in the blank. If that's you, if that's what your life is about and you're pursuing these things, let me tell you what will happen. One, you may achieve them, and when you do, you'll realize they don't ever satisfy you. And two, the moment you achieve it, you're worried you're gonna lose it. And then there are others of you that you never achieve all that you want. You see everybody else around you, and they've all seemed to have it, and it makes you miserable, wanting what you cannot have, not realizing that when you have it, it'll never be enough. When you make life about gain, that life is a joyless, miserable, painful life. And maybe if you really believe in Jesus Christ, yeah, you'll have eternity, but you'll have wasted and squandered your life. But if you can flip it over and you can make life about Christ, then everything becomes joy. If God does give you some kind of gain, if he chooses to bless you, you know what you do? You thank God, praise you for this gift, but my joy is in Christ, not in this gift. So if you take that away, my joy is still there. And if you take that gift away and I begin to suffer, I'm just gonna lean more into you, Jesus, and I'm gonna know you more. And because you're my treasure, I'm gonna find joy in that. And when my time comes to die, it means I'm gonna be with you, Jesus Christ, and that's enough for me, and I have joy. Come what may, it's win, win, win when Christ is first. I've heard it said before that when Christ is everything, then death is no enemy. That's the way we should live life. My question is, is that how you live life? Maybe you're going, Jason, I don't even know what that would look like. I mean, I, I hear stories, I read about the apostle Paul and I know all that kind of stuff, but, but what would that actually look like in, in real life lived out? Well, there's a story about a man who, who lived this out. His, his name is Mehdi Damaj. He, he was alive back in the 80s and uh, he, in, into the 90s, and he was Iranian. And he was a man who had come to faith in Jesus Christ and converted out of Islam into Christianity. But in Iran, that was considered apostasy, and that was a, that was a punishable offense, punishable by death. And so he was imprisoned, and he was there for 10 years in prison, suffering, waiting his trial. And when his trial was going to come, then he was going to be offered the chance to recant his faith, convert back to Islam, or he would be killed. So 10 years after being in prison, he's brought before the trial to give his defense, and he wrote out his defense. And I wanted to read for you just the last paragraph of his defense so you can see what it looks like in modern day for somebody to live for Christ and to see death as gain. Listen to what Mehdi says as he's standing before this tribunal, this group that he knows can take his life in any moment. He says, Jesus Christ is our savior and he is the son of God. To know him means to know eternal life. I, a useless sinner, have believed in his beloved person and all his words and miracles recorded in the gospel and I have committed my life into his hands. Life for me is an opportunity to serve him and death is a better opportunity to be with Christ. Therefore, I'm not only satisfied to be in prison for the honor of his holy name, but am ready to give my life for the sake of Jesus, my Lord. Man, what a truth. What a powerful truth. Here's a person who says, I'm looking death in the face and I don't care. You can take my life. I'll just get more of Jesus. You want me to be in a prison? I'll continue to be in prison if, if I get to suffer for the sake of his name. You want to release me? I'll praise my God, but I will never recant my faith in him. Now this man, just a little while after this moment, he was assassinated for his faith in Jesus Christ. But can you imagine the reception he got when he walked into heaven and how the angels erupted when there was a man who said, my treasure was Christ. I want nothing else more than Christ. 
and what he felt when he got to be with him. That's what it looks like. Paul is saying, Christian, would you learn to treasure Christ, to be willing to say to live is Christ and to die is gain. And the moment you choose to treasure Christ, then everything becomes about him. Wherever he wants you to go, you say, I'll go. Whatever he wants you to do, you say, I'll do it. You form your life about him. He tells you to adopt a child. You say, absolutely, Lord, I'll do it. Mentor a kid in school? Yes, God. Go to the far ends of the earth to share the gospel I'm in. Tell me what to do and I'll do it because Christ, you're my treasure. Yeah, Jason, but, but what if it's hard? Well, in your suffering, you'll, you'll get more of Jesus. But what if I go to a dangerous country and I die? Then you'll get to be with Jesus. And if he's your treasure, it'll be worth it. You just have to come to that place to say, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. You know, I love how Paul started off. He says, for to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And the moment he says that, he gives you the option of filling in that blank. Now, what would yours say? If it had your name, for to me, to live is, and what would it be? Would it be work? Would it be sports? Would it be your family? Would it be entertainment? What would it be? Because if it's not Christ, nothing else in life is going to be right. So here's what I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to come to a place where Christ is your treasure. I know your first response to me, well, how in the world do I make Christ my treasure? I can't just like, come on, heart, start, start treasuring Christ. It, it doesn't work that way. You can't force yourself to treasure Christ. So let me tell you how Christ becomes your treasure. It's very simple. You first realize how much he treasured you. It's faith in the gospel. It's inhaling the gospel. That's what causes you to treasure Christ. When you know the message of the gospel, it says that Jesus loved you so much. We're going to hear about this next week, that he was willing to empty himself of, of his position in heaven, come down to earth so that he could be crucified on the cross to absorb our sin. When we realize what he was willing to do out of love for us because he treasured us, we cannot help it. We treasure him back. We love him back. You want to know how to treasure him? See how much he already treasures you. And then you know three days later he rose up from the dead. And when he conquered death, he secured our eternal salvation. And we know that when we die, death will be gain. We believe the gospel. That's how we treasure Christ. And that's how we come to say to live as Christ and to die as gain. So my question is, do you believe in Christ? Have you come to faith in the gospel? Look, I know there are some of you watching this right now and you have never yet come to that place of declaring that Christ is your treasure. Now, I'm sure there are some of you and you've, you've been going to church or you've been listening online or you've been growing in your faith and you, you love Jesus as a person, but you've never made him your treasure, the most important thing in your life. There are other things that have been more important to you and today's the day where you say no more. No, there's nothing else that deserves that center place in my life to be my treasure other than Jesus and I'm ready to make him my treasure. When you do that, the word of God says clearly we're supposed to respond in faith through something that shows the old us is dead and there's a new us that is risen that is with Christ front and center. And that act is called baptism. And we have a baptism celebration coming up in just a few weeks in the end of February, February 28th. And you may need to be a part of it or one of your children may need to be a part of this moment of declaring Christ is my treasure. So if that's you, or if one of your children is ready to do that, then I wanna encourage you to reach out to us. Very simple way. You just text the word next step to 94253. 
or you can go to fielder.org slash next step. Either one of those is going to take you to a, a form that you fill out that just lets us know that you're ready to declare Christ as your treasure, to be baptized. Or maybe you want to talk to a pastor about this decision. We would love to reach out to you as quickly as possible if you'll just let us know. Don't miss this opportunity. He deserves to be your treasure. Take the step of faith. But I also know there are many of you who, who are believers. And what's happened to you right now is that you've begun to treasure other things beside Christ. Maybe you've let work sneak back into that. Maybe you've put your children on a pedestal when you shouldn't have. Maybe you've put a relationship back to that front and center place. Maybe some, something you wanted to buy has become the most important. You've made that your treasure. And this morning, what you need to do is you need to push all that stuff out of the way and you need to make Christ your treasure all over again because joy is found in that. And so I think one of the best ways to do that is by taking the Lord's Supper. So in a moment, we're gonna join together in song. We're gonna worship God. We're gonna prepare our hearts. And then after that, we're gonna take the Lord's Supper. And when we take the Lord's Supper, we're gonna see a symbol through the bread of the body of Jesus Christ and through the cup of the blood of Jesus Christ. And we're gonna remember the price he paid and we're going to see just how much he treasures us. And when we look at that symbol, my prayer is it will restore in us a desire to treasure Christ above everything else. So I want to challenge you. Go get the elements, get the bread and the cup for all the believers, and then get your heart ready. And in a moment, I'll lead us in taking the Lord's Supper.